Well, good morning. Welcome to Manhattan Presbyterian Church. Today we will be continuing our brief hiatus from the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in the second chapter of the book of Jonah. So if you can recall, I, I preached on Jonah 1 in January. So I think a, a brief recap and introduction to the book is in order here. So if you're new to Christianity, Jonah is a small book in the Old Testament. And it's four brief chapters. And it chronicles the story of a prophet who's running from God. Jonah was a prophet during the time of King Jeroboam II. You can find that information in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 28. And if you were to read 2 Kings 14, you'd see that Jonah was a prophet during the time of Israel's rebellion. The king, Jeroboam, he, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And it actually says that God remembered his promise and refused to blot Israel from the face of the earth. So Jonah is a prophet during a time in Israel's history when they're not seeking to obey God. And so this means Jonah has the firsthand experience of God's mercy and compassion. Yet, you have Jonah, a prophet, who's experienced God's grace, not wanting to extend grace to others. Specifically, the, the Ninevites, who are wicked and evil people. So evil, in fact, that it says there in verse 1 or 2 of chapter 1 that God said their evil had risen to him. So in chapter 1, Jonah flees from God's presence. He boards a boat in the opposite direction of where God called him to go. God then responds to Jonah's disobedience by throwing a massive storm on the sea. And so once the sailors are at the end of their rope, they cast lots and find out it was Jonah who got him into this mess. And after they still try saving themselves one more time, they eventually concede and they listen to Jonah and they pick Jonah up and they hurl him into the sea. And that's when the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. And that's where we're going to pick up in today's sermon. At the very end of chapter 1, verse 17, and then we're going to look at all 10 verses of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. So we have Jonah, the, the adolescent prophet, in the belly of a fish, praying to God. Yes, he is in the belly of a fish. I, I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. This happened. And if you can believe that God spoke the cosmos into existence through the power of words, words like I'm speaking right now, or that you can believe like we celebrated last week, that he has the ability to raise Jesus from the dead, then God sustaining a man in the belly of a fish for three days isn't a stretch. Uh, theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, too much discussion about the great fish can divert us from the real issue. Focus on the great fish and we may lose sight of the great God. The deeper work of God took place not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of the prophet. Not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. So meet me at the very end of chapter 1, and we're going to look at this great exchange that happens in Jonah's heart. So Jonah 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, 
And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That is the word of God. And the grass withers, the flower fades. Stand forever. Uh, Pray with me before we begin. Father, we come before you today to, to hear from your word. Please use the second chapter of this book to nourish our trust in you. Help it recalibrate our love and hope for our neighbors and for ourselves. Please let it kindle in us awe and reverence for your compassion and mercy. Jesus, we ask that we would follow your pattern of obedience. Spirit, we confess our need for your guidance and empowerment to do so. Please open our hearts and direct our wills so that you're honored here in Manhattan and Riley at large. O triune God, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And salvation belongs to you, O Lord. Please make us a community who treasures those truths. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Desperation is defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as a loss of hope and surrender to despair. In my high school and undergraduate studies, I competed as a student athlete in folk style wrestling. Um, No, that is not the WWE stuff, okay? It's the Olympic level stuff. And in practice rooms across the country, there's a game called Shark Bait. It's often a disciplinary game. Uh, When members of the team puts puts himself before the team, he has to play. And so what you'll see is, no matter what he's done, whether through bad grades or partying, missing practice, or acting out in school, his discipline is shark bait. So at the end of practice, a coach will put the student athlete who violated the team's code in the center of the mat. And from there, he has to wrestle until he gets a takedown, or three depending on the variation of shark bait or the, the seriousness or severity of the infraction. But here's the catch. Uh, the wrestler will start with the largest and best wrestler in the room. And if he gives up a takedown, a fresh wrestler steps into the circle with no break. 
and he cannot escape the circle until he scores the necessary amount of takedowns. And so this process can be as short as 10 minutes to as long as an hour and a half. It's brutal. You just watch as grown men break mentally, emotionally, and physically. I tell you this because having watched this a number, on a number of occasions, you can always see it coming. You, you can almost sense it, like almost smell it, when the man in the middle gets desperate and he's about to break. You'll see a flurry of activity. You'll see him trying things he would never, ever hit in a match. And, and then you see him break. He lays on the mat. He won't get up. He can't move, and coach just keeps calling a fresh wrestler into the circle. You see desperation embodied. You see the the loss of hope and the surrender to despair in the flesh. He, He desperately wants to escape that circle, but he can't. When you hear Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, You're hearing the prayer of a desperate man. He's found himself not in the middle of a circle, but in the belly of a fish. And his sin has made him desperate. And so I got to ask you, have, have you ever been desperate because of your sin? When was the the last time in your life when you were desperate for God's presence and relief from your sin? Perhaps it's in the area of finances with credit card debt. Maybe it's that pornography addiction that you can't seem to kick. It could come in the form of a three-year-old stretching their vocal cords in the middle of Target. That reveals your desperation. Whatever it is, whether binge-watching Netflix, cheating on an exam, or fudging the books in your business... Can you recall the last time you were desperate because your sin took you to a place where you weren't enough and you needed relief? Perhaps that's you right now, this Sunday morning, in these red pews. You may be sitting here unconvinced of the claims of Christianity, yet knowing deep down that you can't save yourself and you need answers. And that's why you found yourself here today. Or you could be a Christian sitting in the room not knowing how to defeat your sin. And it's been years of the same old, same old cycle. I want you to recall that time and those emotions because that's where Jonah's at. And that's where we are often at in the little or big ways in our own pilgrimage with Jesus. And so the first thing that we see here in Jonah's prayer is that Jonah's idolatry is, it induces desperation. Jonah's idolatry induced desperation is the backdrop for his prayer. We must see that like Jonah, our idolatry, it leaves us desperate. It puts us in the middle of the circles of life. Idols make us desperate. Last week, Pastor Huff gave a a helpful definition from the author Tim Keller that defines an idol as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination 
more than God. Anything you seek to give, you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything so central and, and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And what makes idols like that so deceptive is that they're often good things. Right? Jonah's God was his nationalism. Right? Love for your people and for your country is a good thing. But in Jonah's case, it became ultimate. And then it ultimately became destructive for him. His love for his own people led him to hate the Ninevites so much he ran from proclaiming God's word to them. He'd rather flee from God's presence than proclaim God's holy love to his enemies. And now he's desperate. Right? Verse 2, he says, I called to the Lord out of my distress. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Verse 3, the flood surrounded me. Your waves and billows passed over me. Verse 4, I'm driven away from your sight. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Jonah's sin has suffocated him. It's crushing him. Jonah's sin and idolatry has brought him to a place of desperation. Jonah has finally realized that he cannot save himself, and he's desperate. And it's because his idols have left him in the belly of a fish, and he needs a solution. And so we have to recognize our idols will do the same thing. And so you have to ask yourself, are you desperate from relief from your idols? Or do you still think that you can make your idols work? If you just work a little harder and just continue to pull yourself up by your bootstraps for a little bit longer, that you can make it happen. So our first point of application today is, is simply to recognize. Recognize the path that idolatry puts you on. Idolatry always takes us down the path of desperation. Peter Craigie points out that the text from the very beginning of chapter 1 has been depicting Jonah as descending. He's going down to Joppa, verse 3. Then he's down into the ship. Then he's down into the depths of the ship, verse 5. And now finally he goes further down into the very depths of the ocean, verse 3 of chapter 2. Idolatry is always a downward spiral. Idolatry. Loving anything more than you love God will always leave you desperate. It makes you a drowning person without a life raft and no hope of shore. And if we don't recognize this path for what it truly is, then it will eventually lead us to despair and death. Idolatry-induced desperation always culminates in idolatry-induced death. Idolatry-induced desperation always culminates in idolatry-induced death because idols lack the power to bring life. Right? Jonah's despair is evident in verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 and 6 highlight Jonah's thoughts as he enters the sea. 
right? The, the waters have closed in over him to take his life. Verse 6 says, He's gone to the land whose bars closed upon him forever. It's the finality of death. Right? In verse 7, he, he acknowledges that his life is fainting away. And it all climaxes in verse 8. When Jonah makes the blanket statement that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. No hope of steadfast love. Can you imagine that life? Can you, can you put yourself there in a world and in a life where you have no hope of steadfast love? That's death. Idolatry ultimately brings us to the point of death because they can't provide the, the unconditional love and security that we all crave. Right, this is the Apostle Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, 17-19. He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have, no, have hope in this life only, we are, are of all people most to be pitied. You see, the ultimate problems with idols is that they can never transcend our ultimate problem. They can't solve the ultimate dilemma. They can't solve death. No amount of money can stop death. No GPA, no well-behaved child, no amount of Netflix, no sports championships. There, there isn't an achievement in this life that can reverse the laws of thermodynamics. We are all dying. We are all in need of redemption. Turning to idols to, to find your source of identity or joy or meaning or satisfaction is like writing checks when you don't have money in your bank account. It's futile. The check will bounce. It's just a matter of time. It's like buying from the scam account on Amazon that set their price ridiculously low hoping you'll buy, all the while knowing they're never going to send that package to your house. It's like stumbling upon a bottle of salt water in the desert when you haven't drank in three days. You think it will satisfy, but it will only kill you faster. And hear me, we all know this intellectually. Right? In all my time in campus ministry, I've never spoken with a single young man who said, I feel so satisfied after I watch pornography. I've never spoken with a new parent who said, when I fly off the handle at my children and they finally do what I want, man, I'm just so content. Right? I, I, I've never spoken with anyone who, after a session of retail therapy where they spent the month's rent check, right, they say, you know, I just feel more secure now. Right? We all acknowledge that our idols, they don't lead to life, but we keep going back to them. 
And so we got to acknowledge the path they put us on. And they, we got to acknowledge that the ultimate destination of idolatry is death. Our idols always take us to the place of death. They can't deliver life. Their only currency is death. So our second point of application today is that we got to rip up the idolatry checkbook. Those checks always bounce. And, and the way that the Bible calls us to rip up that checkbook is repentance. Right? Turn from your idols. Don't pay regard to vain idols and forsake your hope of steadfast love. Don't wait to do this. I mean, did you catch that in verse 17? Don't be like Jonah. Right? Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Right? Then we get to chapter one of our chapter verse one of chapter two, right? It's it's then he prays. I don't know about you, but if I'm in the belly of a fish, I hope I pray sooner than three days. I don't want to wait three days before I start praying. But that's where Jonah's at. And before we're super harsh on Jonah, we need to recognize that we're all like him. Like Brian said last week, we all have functional idols. We all have things that we turn to to give us life when we know they won't. We've all put off repentance at some point. Whether it's laying there in bed next to your spouse in stony silence, waiting for what feels like three days and three nights for them to apologize first. Or if it's laying in bed after silencing your alarm for the seventh time, knowing that you need to get out of bed and go to class. Right? We, we, we all put off the things that we know we, we need to do. We all put off repentance. But we have to keep remembering the gospel and we have to keep telling ourselves in those moments that that idol will only produce death in our life. We have to remember it's trying to kill you. So how do we turn? How can we acknowledge what Jonah acknowledged in these 10 verses and at the very end of his prayer? We have to fear God more than we fear our idols. We have to treasure who God is more than we treasure our idols. We have to confess that salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? The, the hope of our salvation is God himself. We have to turn to God. Our hope and our salvation. And there are three reasons that I see in this particular passage for why we should turn and trust in that hope and in that salvation. And the first is that he hears you. Right? Jonah's in the bottom of a sea with tons of water above him in the belly of a fish miles from where he should have been and all because of his sin. And yet, verse 2, what do we see? He answered me. Verse 7, my prayer came to you. If God can hear Jonah in the belly of a fish in the bottom of the Mediterranean... He can hear you in Riley. He hears you right now in those red pews. 
God hears you. He sees you and he hears you. So cry out to him. Don't wait to get your act together before you call out on the Lord. Salvation belongs to him and he can give it freely. And he wants to. Here's the second reason is he's providentially caring for you and giving you all you need. Right, look at verse 17 again of chapter 1. Who appoints the fish? God. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Who answers Jonah? God. Look at verse 3. Who cast Jonah into the deep? God. Whose waves and billows pass over him in verse 3? God's. In verse 6, who brings Jonah up from the pit? God. The Lord was sustaining Jonah the entire time. There there was not a single molecule of water in that sea that was outside of his sovereign control. And every single molecule was working for Jonah's good. Brothers and sisters, if your hope is in the Lord, that promise is true for you too. That in the midst of the good, in the midst of the hard, the Lord is working all things together for His good and for His glory and and for your good. So trust in His providential care. There is nothing outside that scope that He cannot meet you in. And He loves you. Here's the third reason. We see that He himself is salvation. That he himself is your redemption. Right? That final summation of Jonah's prayer that salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? You could use that to sum up the entire Bible if you really wanted to. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jonah said that in the Old Testament, in the middle of the Mediterranean. And as Christians today, sitting in the middle of the United States, we know that truth in greater ways and with greater clarity because not only did God eventually redeem Jonah, he came in the flesh and he redeemed us. We know this because there's a greater Jonah. It's Jesus. There was someone after Jonah who didn't just go into the belly of a fish. He went into the belly of the earth. That's Jesus. We know this because of passages like Matthew 12, 38 through 41 and Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And the last time I preached on chapter 1, we looked at the, the Matthew 12 passage. So this time, let's look at the Matthew 16 Verses 1 through 4, the, the religious elite of the day come to test Jesus. And, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test them, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. What Jesus is saying there is, is you want some type of sign, but there isn't a greater sign than God himself 
entering human history, living the life that we should have lived, and then dying the death we should have died, and then being raised back to life. There's no greater sign of the redemption of Israel than me. So Jesus would go into the depth of the tomb for three days, just like Jonah went into the belly of that fish. Jesus would be resurrected. He would be vomited back out into the land of the living to let us know that he is king and that our hope is secure. And that's ultimately why we can trust that salvation belongs to the Lord and we can go to him freely. It's because he's done everything that we need. In all our moments of life, when we are Jonah, spending our lives in idolatry, the Lord is pursuing us. And he's calling us to faith and repentance. So our third point of application today is to trust the Lord Jesus for your salvation. Trust the Lord Jesus for your salvation. Turn from your idols, whatever they may be. Turn from them and turn to Jesus. If I were to put this sermon in a sentence, I would say it like this. Idol-induced desperation and death can't stop Jesus. Idol-induced desperation and death can't stop Jesus. Peter Craigie says this of Jonah. He says, But not until he was all the way down, finally stripped of his buoyant self-sufficiency, was deliverance possible. Too often we refuse to turn to the Lord until we hit rock bottom, until we're seized by desperation and despair, until death is right there. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can turn to him today. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says... In a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Trust the Lord Jesus for your salvation today. If you sit here today and you're unconvinced of the claims of Christianity, I encourage you to trust in Jesus for your salvation. You need to be justified before God, and Jesus' blood can justify you. It can wipe away your sins. And if you sit here today and you're a Christian, I I encourage you to trust Jesus for your salvation. You need his abiding presence for your continuing sanctification and your eventual glorification. You need his abiding presence for your continued growth and for you to finally enter heaven. We are all, all of us, in need of God's grace today. Like Jonah, we're desperate. Our idols leave us empty, and yet... 
God's grace is sufficient for you no matter how far you've strayed. The hope of salvation is the Lord Jesus. Let's rest in him today. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the book of Jonah. I thank you that you don't leave us in our wayward sin or chasing idolatry. I thank you that you've called us to share your love with our neighbors. And I ask that you would make us a a witnessing community that is quick to repent and mirrors your heart for the world. Spirit, please cause us to take your love to the neighborhoods of Manhattan, not to earn your love, but because we've experienced your love, let us share it freely. Lord, please humble us like you humbled Jonah. And please bring us back to life in a daily kind of way, Lord, just like you did with Jonah. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.